In Matthew chapter 20, we uh, have already kind of dipped our toe into this chapter just a little bit. Um, and we have seen where uh, Jesus, at least on his journeys, we see him kind of making his way um, from Jericho and now they're getting ready to go up to Jerusalem. And Jesus is already talking about his death and his resurrection. Um, and we talked about last week, uh, the first part of Matthew chapter 20, the laborers who came into the vineyard and they uh, you know, received diff- you know, the payment uh, no matter what time they showed up. And, and Jesus talked about the first shall be last, the last shall be first, you know. And, um, and then uh, we saw on Sunday where Jesus declared what was gonna happen in Jerusalem. And it's a powerful, you know, topic-packed, uh, just a few verses, verses 17 through 19. If you missed that, you might wanna get caught up on that one because uh, Jesus spells it out. What's, what is he going to Jerusalem to do? Um, and he's going to be crucified. He's gonna be uh, apprehended by the, the religious leaders and then turned over to the Gentiles, the Romans, and mocked and scourged and crucified. But then, always with Jesus and talking about his death, what would he always include when he talked about his death? His resurrection, yes. And so we looked at that uh, on Sunday, very important. And so this is the message. Now, um, we pick up there in verse 20, where we left off on Sunday, uh, Matthew 20, verse 20. It says, then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, what wilt thou? She saith unto him, grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in in thy kingdom. Now, these sons of Zebedee are none other than James and John. Um, is there anything suspicious about what, what's going on here when you first read this? Uh, it's, you know, first of all, I have to say, uh, it, it seems that Jesus is talking about something that is the most heavy, most important thing that we will ever talk about in all the world's history, that Jesus came to die on a cross and raised from the dead. And then interrupted by James and John's mother, hey, uh, by the way, speaking of dead, um, now, have you ever had a conversation where you're trying to talk something about this really, really important and then somebody comes in and sort of, oh, hey, by the way, and they just totally ruin the, the moment? I kind of get that sense right here. Um, the moment's being ruined. Uh, and remember, what, one of the things we observed on Sunday is whenever Jesus started to talk about his death and his resurrection, the disciples would, you know, well, the first time there in Matthew 16, Peter tried to rebuke Jesus and say, yeah, not so. Uh, and, and it's almost like the, the disciples didn't want to hear it. In the same way, this one, it's like, let's change the subject. Let's talk about my sons and where they'll sit in the kingdom uh, and all that stuff. And so there's, that's the first little suspicious thing. But also verse uh, 20, it says uh, that she came with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And that, that combo is kind of an interesting thing that I think reveals our wicked hearts, perhaps. Uh, Not that desiring of the Lord is any problem. In fact, you know, um, desiring of the Lord uh, is something that we we should do uh, and let our desires be made known to the Lord. That's okay. But it seems that she's worshiping so that she can get her desires. Um, And then, um, you know, uh, sometimes I think if we're not careful, we can have that same attitude. Um, You know, I, I went to church um, and so, Lord, I, I, I'm worshiping you, and I want to get something out of that. 
Now, if you're wanting to get you know, time with the Lord, great, or wanting to get deeper in the word, cool. But I've noticed people can go to church and worship and desiring other things. You know, Lord, I'm a single man and I, I'm young and I'd like to be married. Um, so I'm here worshiping, Lord, look at me, hello. I'm even swaying back and forth as I'm worshiping. Bring to me a wife, Lord. Uh, you, you come worshiping, desiring, or, or, or whatever it is. You know, we all have our little things. Or the, um, you know, the, the person who wants to don't have uh, connections, you know, networking. And okay, Lord, I'm here at church, you know, and hopefully I'll make a few business connections, contacts, uh, you know, and, and uh, be able to further my, my uh, career or whatever. I've seen that. It, it's kind of ugly when we as Christians come worshiping. And the reason why we're worshiping is because we're desiring. You get a little bit of that perhaps. Uh, from this, um, which is kind of interesting. But another thing that we need to understand is, um, is that the mom here, um, she's probably not as much as the guilty one as it is James and John. And the reason we know this, and you can maybe jot this in your notes uh, near this, but in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 35, uh, it, it basically says that James and John are the ones who really wanted this. They're the ones who put their mother probably up to it. Mommy, will you go tell Jesus we want to sit there? Like, like, this is really embarrassing. Uh, this is embarrassing for James and John. And, uh, you know, and in fact, Mark kind of puts it more like they just came directly from James and John. Uh, but I think these guys put their mother up to it. Um, and so what, what do these guys want? Uh, and this is just something we have to watch out for. Why do we seek Jesus? Why do we worship Jesus? Um, we, we need to check our motivation sometimes. Um, and oftentimes the things that we are desiring, if we're worshiping because we're desiring, I think that might be off. It's okay to desire, um, uh, uh, but it's, it's another thing to uh, you know, try to manipulate. And that's kind of what's going on here, it seems. But what is she asking for? What did James and John actually want? Um, verse 21, um, she said unto him, grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left in thy kingdom. Now, now you and I think, oh, when they get to heaven, you know, Jesus will be sitting in heaven and you know, James and John will be sitting. That's probably not what they're envisioning. Remember, these guys are still thinking earthly kingdom, conquer the Romans, check that box, and then Jesus will rule and reign in his kingdom. And so wouldn't it be cool, you know, her, the mother is saying, uh, wouldn't it be awesome if when Jesus, you know, gets rid of the Roman Empire, straightens out Caiaphas and the high priest and all those guys, and then sets up his throne in, in, the, in the kingdom of Jerusalem, then to have her son sitting at his right and his left? Yeah, that sounds good. We'll, we'll ask for that. But that's, that's really why you, you see the, the misunderstanding because we know, you and I know, uh, that Jesus is not gonna set up his earthly kingdom at this time. Um, he's gonna save the world from its sins and die on the cross. And so they, they really don't even know what they're asking. Um, um, what did they want? They wanted to sit at the right and the left. Um, remember the rich young ruler in that story back uh, in Matthew chapter 19, we saw that you know, Jesus talked about forsaking all. And then remember when Peter said, well, then what, what do we get there in verse, chapter 19, verse 27? Peter's like, well, what do we get? Because uh, we left you, you know, and forsook all. What, what's our prize, you know? And, um, and Jesus you know, said, you know, um, you know, you don't understand. You guys are gonna sit on thrones, Jesus said there in verse uh, 28. You are gonna sit on thrones. So, so you gotta give you know, James and John some credit. Jesus already told them, yes, you're gonna sit on thrones. Um, but they weren't the thrones that they were probably thinking about and didn't count the cost of what, what they were really asking. 
So when Peter asked that, what shall we get? You'll sit, you'll sit in 12 thrones, verse 28 of chapter 19. So sitting on thrones is something Jesus did promise to them, but they wanted the thrones right next to Jesus. And the question is why? Why did these two disciples want the, the thrones closest to Jesus? Um, you can kind of read in between the lines a little bit. Was it to be closer to Jesus and just be tight with Jesus spiritually? Uh, probably not. It was, it was probably to jump uh, on the, uh, before the other disciples. Remember when you were a kid and you'd open the box of cereal and have the little toy and you'd say, dibs? That's what the disciples are doing right here. They're saying, dibs on the thrones next to Jesus uh, because they were the glorious thrones. The closer you were to Jesus, the more important you must be. So, so James and John are thinking, of course, we will sit right next to Jesus because we're the most important disciples. They were, we, we do know certain things. They were constantly arguing about which one of them would be the greatest. And that's when Jesus would give us messages like he's about to give. You know, if you wanna be great, you must become what? A servant. Uh, and, and this is where Jesus is gonna take this because we, we see this. And, and that's why I think their motivation was to get a jump on the other disciples in the kingdom. Um, and so, so it's, it's for this reason why, by the way, I think the other disciples, let's, let's look ahead. Let's sneak preview verse 24. When the 10 heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brothers. <laughs> oh, brother, these two guys, James, what a joke, these guys trying to get a jump on the thrones next to Jesus. Like, um, now, this is, there's a whole other problem with that, that they're moved with indignation, but Jesus um, is dealing with what seems like, like little kids. Do you notice, you notice this with the disciples? It's like, uh, what are we, in junior high again? Um, and, and you know, you say, oh, well, Brett, aren't we supposed to have childlike faith? No, this is an example of childish uh, dibsing the thrones next to Jesus. And, and I'm, I'm sorry for those disciples because I'm not sure any of us would have done much differently. But back to um, Jesus's response, and that's verse 22. He says, but Jesus answered and said, you know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. That's laughable if you ask me. Of course, what, what cup? Where's the, where's the little miniature communion cup? Uh, or where's the cup of wine? Or where, we'll drink, get, uh, bottoms up, man. What are you talking about? We'll drink the cup. Oh no, what was the cup and what was the baptism? Well, um, you know, it's interesting because in Matthew 26, verse 39, um, we're reminded that Jesus went on, fell on his face there in the garden of Gethsemane. He said, oh father, if it be possible, you know, let this cup Pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. Remember that whole cup of suffering? That's what he's talking about here. You're not able to drink of this cup of suffering that I'm gonna drink. Oh, sure we are. You know, yeah, we're ready. Are you guys ready? Now, that's them being kind of goofy. But at the same time, um, I admire these disciples because ultimately they will drink a very similar cup of suffering. Uh, and, and Jesus even acknowledges that. Um, what's this baptism he's talking about? Well, it's a baptism unto death. Um, that's the idea, you know, picture of being buried and uh, then coming back from the dead. And their response is, can do, uh, we can do that. Um, and, you know, sometimes I, th I think we do have to count the cost of the things we're asking. When these disciples say, Jesus, we wanna sit on your right hand and left. And Jesus says, man, do you really know what that means? Uh, sure, can do, we, we can do that. But I wonder how many times you and I ask of things of the Lord and think, you know, oh yeah, can do, we want that. Of, of course we'd want that. Um, but then, you know, it's, it's interesting uh, how, um, how the things we ask for 
Sometimes I look back and I'm, I'm really glad the Lord didn't answer some of the prayers of the things I was asking for because I didn't have any idea what that meant. Um, those of you that are married, Bible says those of you who are married will have trouble. It's a promise of God's word. So it's funny, there's the, the unmarried person saying, oh, if I could just be married. Then there's the married people saying, oh, if I could just be single again. <laughs> and we're all very un uh, discontented with life and people think they know what they want. Um, you know, um, so when we ask, you know, I want a wife, I want a wife, be careful what you're asking for. <laughs> or I want a husband, uh, you know, it's, it's a tricky thing. Now, of course, in my situation, I was blessed and I'm perfectly happy, uh, and it's true. <laughs> and I've been overly blessed uh, by, in that department. Um, but but, it, but is, marriage is, is challenging and hard and people ask for that all the time. And sometimes I wonder, have they really counted the cost um, when they're asking? And that could go with any topic, not just marriage. Um, so how does Jesus respond? I love the graciousness of Jesus. If I were Jesus, I'd say, you guys are a bunch of losers. You're gonna sit in, on the naughty mat when we get to the kingdom. Uh, you're not gonna sit, you're not gonna sit on a throne. Uh, you're gonna sit in the corner with a dunce hat on. Um, no, that, but that, good thing I'm not Jesus. Check out what Jesus says. In verse, uh, verse 23, and Jesus said to them, you shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. And when the 10 heard it, <clears throat> they were moved with indignation, <clears throat> excuse me, against the two brethren. Um, I, first of all, Jesus' response, then the disciples' response. Jesus' response is so gracious and, and, and he knows all things and he knows that these guys will suffer, be tortured. Um, you know, James and John uh, would, would go down as, as martyrs in some ways. John would be boiled in a pot of oil, but um, only uh, not to die. Somehow God would preserve him, save him, uh, but he would, he would be thrown in exile on an island. Um, and, uh, you know, and James would probably be killed in one of the most gr grotesque and brutal ways. But all that to say, Jesus knew all those things. And, and, um, and, and, and he said something interesting. And, and this is where people get a little bit derailed. And we have to be careful with the language. Um, does Jesus know all things? Wait a minute. What does it say here? Jesus said, um, <laughs> you be careful when you answer questions. Um, to sit on the, my left and my, uh, is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom is prepared of my father. Um, what about the day or the hour of his coming? Does Jesus know that? Well, I thought you guys just told me that he knew, knew all things. Um, now, now, this is something we have to be careful with. And I, I, I do dive into this just on this, just I probably shouldn't because we don't have a lot of time. We've got a lot to cover. But, um, but when Jesus became a human being, um, some, some pastors say, you know, he laid aside his deity. And I understand why they say that, but I think we have to be careful with that kind of language. Because Jesus was deity. Would you agree with that? Yes, Jesus was God in the flesh, Emmanuel. So I think we have to be careful about this language. But what I would maybe carefully try to say is Jesus became a human, when he became a human being, 100% God, 100% man, that's what we believe, um, he sort of divested himself in, uh, of certain rights as God the Son. Um, that's the way I, I would maybe put that. He, he sort of, um, di you know, that's, that's the word I would use. Um, um, and we can see this in, in many ways. You know, first he restricted himself to a human body with all of its limitations. 
Um, he gave up his position when he became a human being as uh, the omnipresent God. Um, but he's still God. And so like, what do you mean, Brett? Do you remember when Jesus said, hey, disciples, it's good for, for you guys that I'm gonna leave you. He says in John 14 and, and John 16, he's like, why would it be good? And he said, he talked about how the Holy Spirit's gonna come and fill all of them. And then the same things that Jesus was able to do by the power of the Spirit as a human, God in the flesh, um, the same things the disciples would be able to do because of the Holy Spirit that would fill them. Um, and by the way, that's where people say, well, then we're gonna be greater than Jesus. No, you're gonna be able to do greater things because my whole church will be filled with the same spirit that I'm filled with to do the things that I do. Um, and, and so that's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, he, he was limited in the sense that he gave up his um, uh, position when he became a human being. He restricted himself to human body with its limitations. Second on this, he veiled or hid his glory from people. The Bible tells us that. And he even tried to tone down, even when people were trying to pass the word. Remember, don't, don't, don't tell anybody about this stuff uh, until the hour would come. But he also exercised his relative attributes only by the will of God the Father, never on his own initiative. This is an interesting thing. Jesus would say, I always do the will of my Father. And I understand we're tapping into a very mysterious thing of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're talking about all three of those you know, parts of God's being, but Jesus was God. But this is why sometimes Jesus would defer and say, I don't even know this. It's my father who, who knows this, which is in heaven. And people get a little frustrated by this saying, well, if he's God in the flesh, shouldn't he know all this stuff? Um, you have to understand he is God in the flesh, but uh, he willingly made himself uh, like, I like to refer to Philippians chapter two when he says he made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of the servant, even in the likeness of men. And for Jesus to be tempted in all points like as we are, he needed to have the same struggles and feelings we had. Uh, have. And so there's even the, the fear of not knowing or not uh, understanding what's gonna happen every single moment of every single day. Um, Jesus knew what that felt like, which is kind of interesting. So don't let this kind of a thing, when Jesus says only my Father in heaven knows this stuff, don't let that derail you. It's, it's part of what Jesus willingly did to be God in the flesh, for God to become a man. Does that make sense? Hopefully that helps a little bit because this is one of those verses where you see that. And there's several places uh, we're gonna bump into that even more as we uh, proceed. Now, as we look at that response, it's gracious. And he says, disciples, you're gonna taste the cup and you are gonna be baptized with the baptism of death just like I uh, am going to be. Uh, but he says that you almost sense a sense of compassion. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's kind of a, um, an honorable sort of sense, even though the disciples are being sort of goofy and they're all acting badly, uh, Jesus lovingly, I think, says this about them. One other quick thing before we move on. The other disciples are missing something. Jesus just said something that all of them are gonna be affected by when he said, you will drink of the cup uh, that I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism that I'm gonna be baptized with. Um, that's a pretty heavy duty thing for the disciples to hear, wouldn't you agree? But what were they thinking about after he said that? Well, the verse tells us, and the disciples were moved with indignation against the two brothers. <laughs> it's like they were so busy being mad at the others that they missed the truth that Jesus just said, I think. And sometimes I think we miss the truths that God wants for us when we're upset with our brothers and sisters or people that are wronging us or doing stupid stuff. We miss some of the stuff because our eyes are looking at the, 
the goofy uh, part of Christianity or the Christians that are goofy or doing dumb things. Um, you'll miss the point on what the Lord's actually doing. So it would have been better, more mature, easy to say in hindsight for these disciples to kind of forget James and John and their goofiness and actually listen to what Jesus actually was saying. Just something to think about. Well, he goes on in verse 25. But Jesus called them unto him and said, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life ransom for many. Oh, so much here. The ransom payment, uh, the redeeming work of Jesus that he's coming to do for us. He came to die for our sins. Just that alone, we could do a whole lifetime of study on the, the redeeming work, the ransom that was paid. But Jesus uh, takes this teaching moment as the disciples are all upset with each other and moved with indignation against their brothers because they wanted to sit by the throne and stuff. Um, Jesus uses that as a teaching moment. Mom and dad, this is the way it works. When your kids are squabbling or upset about things, you use them those moments as teaching moments. And um, that's what Jesus does. And, and uh, speaking of which, he says, um, you know, if you wanna be great, you must be, uh, let him be your minister. Whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Totally opposite of what the world teaches. If you wanna be great, be a big shot. Climb the ladder, uh, be respected be an influencer, you know, um, that's kind of what our world says. But Jesus goes totally opposite of that. Um, if you wanna be great, let that person who's great be your minister. The word minister is kind of a fun word in the Greek. It's the, the word where we get our word deacon. Uh, it's one of the leaders in the church, is, uh, the deacons of the church. And the Greek word is diakonos, which means a deacon, servant, or one who uh, executes the commandments of another. And that's the contents, context that Jesus is using. One who's just following the lead of others and serving is the idea. And then the word servant is also kind of a, a fun word to look at in the Greek text. It's the Greek word doulos, um, which means a bond slave or a slave by choice. Um, you know, there was the bond slave was the one who chose to be a servant after he was to be set free according to the Jewish law after, you know, serving the seven years, he could go free. But if he really wanted to stay, well, you say, who wants to stay and be a slave? Well, if you became part of the family, if you were loved as a son or a daughter, even though you were technically a slave, the Jews were required by law to let you go. But if the person said, I don't wanna go, I wanna, I, want you to, I wanna be here for the rest of my life, then they would put a awl on their ear on the doorpost and tunk, pierce their ear and put a ring in there. And that was a mark that they were a, not just a slave, but a bond slave. There was a difference. Um, the slave could be one whether they wanted it or not, but the bond slave was a slave by choice, choice. And that's the kind of language Paul would use in Romans 1.1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. That's the big shot stuff but separated unto the gospel of Christ. But it's interesting, we say, oh, Paul the apostle, that was a big deal. But the first thing he calls himself is a slave. He says, Paul, a doulos of Jesus Christ, a, a slave by choice. Um, I think that's pretty cool. It's funny how the words in our uh, King James here, minister, that name has like a flashiness to it right now. Oh, I'm a minister of the gospel. I always get freaked out by people calling me the titles. Um, I always, back when I used to look at mail, um, 
uh, when I got junk mail, whenever it said Reverend Brett Metter, it was immediately in the trash because I knew they didn't know who I was. Uh, I am not Reverend. I, I think that was one of the bad ideas, you know, uh, the idea of a, the name Reverend or the right Reverend so-and-so, it's like, uh, it means that they're meant to be revered and respected, which sadly, that's where a lot of preachers, ministers, pastors, clergymen have gone the opposite direction. Um, and so to call yourself Reverend is, is kind of goofy to me. Um, but it's funny, even the word minister, which started out as servant, uh, you know, diaconus, uh, a deacon, servant, one who uh, executes the commands of another. It's funny how that word, we've changed it to mean something else. Oh, he's a minister, ooh. Uh, but it's really not that. We should all uh, look at in ministry, we need to remember ministry is servanthood, to be a servant and to do the work and work hard uh, and serve the Lord. That's what we're called to do. Um, so Jesus, in a, in, a, in a sense, he says, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your diakonos, uh, deacon, servant, one who executes the manners of another. And whoever will be chief among you, let him be a doulos, a bond slave. Um, and so what a reminder to the disciples. Uh, and that's what we should all be careful about in our own attitude. Well, it goes on there in verse 28. Uh, Even as the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but came to minister. That, that was Jesus's demeanor. That was his heart to be a, a, a slave, a servant and gave his life as ransom. Well, verse 29, uh, it says, and as they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, they cried out saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And the multitude rebuked them because they should hold their peace. But they cried uh, the more saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And Jesus stood still and called them and said, what will ye that I shall, uh, shall do to you? And they said unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. Man, I love this. Uh, we have here, uh, uh, you know, Jericho, they're leaving Jericho, uh, the city of Palms. It's like a little oasis kind of in a desert uh, that was down at the foothills by the Dead Sea. Uh, as you get your way up to Jerusalem, that's like the foothills of, of when you're just getting ready to ascend. Um, so that's where they're going. But he's got a huge crowd. A, it's called a great multitude. Now it's not great that they were nice. They're actually mean, uh, the mean multitude. Uh, because you know this group um, you know, is actually kind of brutal when the blind beggars come, they say, get these beggars out of here. You know, Jesus doesn't have time for you. Get them out of here. Get out of here. Uh, I hope at the church at AC Creek, we don't have uh, a mean multitude where people that need help or are hurting or are blind or naked or, you know, in poverty. I hope that we're never that church. Um, I, I do worry because we have a lot of nice people here at Athey. Um, we have a lot of well-to-do people in our church. Uh, it's just where we live. We live in a wealthy place, in a wealthy uh, community. At least uh, you kind of have to be if you're gonna have a home in the Portland area. You have, I mean, you have to pay through the nose. Um, and so it's a little different demographic sometimes. And, and one thing I, I worry about is when our church gets bigger and bigger, um, one thing that can happen is the personality of a church can change if you're not careful. And Athey Creek has to be the, the multitude, which we are now, um, you know, we're at this weird place now where we're just bumping into the ceiling of how many people can actually fit 
in this building. Uh, tonight is a good example. You guys sitting back in the foyer, I'm sorry about that. You guys that hiked a mile and a half up in the dark uh, tonight, thank you for that. I, I don't even know why you're doing it. Uh, you guys are crazy, uh, but you're willing and it's, it's awesome. Um, but at the same time, you know, like Sunday was just five services packed out, packed, packed, packed. And, um, and, and that's great, what, what a wonderful, you know, kind of problem to have. But at the same time, if we're not careful, we have to kind of watch our attitude about things. Um, um, how, how are you? What is your attitude when you drive into the parking lot, even though they're parking you in Timbuktu and it's raining and stuff? Are you, A, saying, praise the Lord, I get my cardio in and gonna walk to church and you know, lose a, you know, a few calories as we go in? Or, or um, say, praise the Lord, I'm gonna leave those parking spaces for maybe unsaved new people. I'm gonna go out into the first, like, is that your attitude? Or are you cussing out our parking lot attendants like last Sunday? <laughs> Yeah, last Sunday we had some people cussing out our parking lot attendants because of their parking. Um, well, that's great, by the way, because they probably need to come to church. Whoever did that, you probably need to come and get saved, you know, and accept Jesus as your personal savior. So I'm glad the cussing people are here. That's great. Um, but, but it does make me worry about the personality of a church when people can come and start, you know, hey, this is our country club here at Athey. God forbid, this is where we want the blind beggars to feel welcome. And if there's blind beggars that stumble in, I use that term you know, from the Bible here. If blind beggars stumble into Athe Greek, I hope that they feel loved and accepted and hugged and cared for and prayed for and, and encouraged and built up. That has to be what happens at this church. Uh, otherwise, we should pack it up. We're just a bunch of hypocrites and we're weirdos and we should go. Uh, that's something we have to really watch out for. Um, I'm so thankful for uh, the amount of people that are here just to serve, like our parking lot attendants who take abuse out there. Um, you know, it's amazing. Our children's ministry teams and all the people that are just wiping snotty noses of kids for free. Um, you know, like that's, that's something that is uh, a servant. That we, I, I'm so thankful for the teams of people we have at Athey that are willing to take the hits from some of the people that come in from the outside. Uh, and uh, and that, that's, that's really what Jesus, it gives us a chance to do what Jesus said quite practically. But, um, you know, we learn about becoming servant and minister, that's part of it. But then you see this great multitude, which is pushing the blind people away. And that's something we should never, never want. The crowd is rebuking them while Jesus actually has compassion on them. Um, we, we need to be like Christ. Have compassion on the needy ones. Now, notice the different methods. If you follow the Bible, uh, Jesus heals blind people all the time. But he uses different methods. Uh, in this case, it says here uh, that he had compassion, verse 34, and he touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight. Um, you know, there's other times where Jesus just spoke the word and their eyes were healed. There's other times where Jesus got mud and spit and rubbed it in a guy's eye. And then there was a second time where he had to do it again and pray twice. Um, and, you know, it's funny how I like how Jesus does different types and different ways of healing. Could he have done it the same every single time? Yes. Why do you think he chose different methods and means with each blind person? Don't know for sure. But one thing I do know is there's no formula, right? Jesus is not going by some formula of how he's gonna heal the blind people. Um, you know, just speak the word. Let's start a speak the word of faith movement. That's what we'll do. Or let's be the ministry of mud and spit, mud and spit. And all we need is more mud and spit. It's like people get up on, on their tangents of what works, you know, uh, or the, the time where he had to get, uh, you know, prayed for or healed twice, you know. We'll call that the second chance ministries, you know, or, or um, you know, but the Lord moved in different ways. And, and I think we need to also be open to that, not try to sometimes over-formulize 
uh, healing or the way things happen. Um, Jesus moves in different ways. He's like the Holy Spirit, isn't he? In the sense that the Spirit is like the wind and you don't know from whence it comes or where it goes and the timing and all that, it's, it's a bit of a variable. And that's the way the Lord tends to work. So there you have it. Well, chapter 21 goes on. And Jesus now arrives to Jerusalem area, um, just, just sort of a suburb, if you would, of Jerusalem called um, Bethphage, or um, some argue that Bethphage is another name for Bethany. Others say, no, they're actually two very different places, uh, but, but next to each other. Um, but, but Bethany is that place where, you know, uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. And rarely did Jesus actually, if ever, uh, spend the night in Jerusalem. He would often you know, spend the night at Mary and Martha's house with Lazarus, uh, and, um, and then he would go into Jerusalem, and then he'd come back over the Mount of Olives and spend the night in Bethany, a uh, 15-minute hike or whatever. Um, but, uh, but he wouldn't really spend the night in Jerusalem until he was apprehended. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. And we're starting to get into that, that cycle um, and Bethany is uh, the same way when I go to Jerusalem with our Athe Creek tour, one of the things we do is get up early our first morning in Jerusalem and we get up on near Bethany and we just walk in, right up to the top of the Mount of Olives, the same place Jesus was. And then we walk down the Palm Sunday road as it's called, where Jesus would uh, be hanging out here in chapter 21. This whole uh, section is where uh, the Palm Sunday road coming down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley. Uh, it's kind of a cool setting when you go to Jerusalem. So verse one, when they drew nigh to Jerusalem, they were come to Bethphage, um, uh, unto the Mount of Olives. Uh, then sent Jesus two disciples saying um, unto them, go into the village over against you and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man shall say aught unto you, you shall say, the Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. <laughs> so, uh, you know, some scholars and, you know, critics of the Bible say, you know, did Jesus prearrange this meeting with this donkey? Like, like was that a code word? The Lord hath need of them. Oh, the code word. Like, like is this some, you know, key word or something? No, I think um, we, one of the things we don't want to try to do is over-explain all this stuff. Jesus can make anything happen. Even though he did become a man and uh, restricted himself to human limitations in some ways, he was still the miracle worker and he still did miracles. And I would say this is one. Um, Jesus never said which donkey to go to in Bethany. There were, and by the way, there were thousands of donkeys in Bethany. Just like, did you know, even today on the Mount of Olives, there's tons of donkeys everywhere. You still see donkeys everywhere. Um, you can even ride a donkey uh, down the Palm Sunday Road if you want. There's guys there, the same old guy, he's gotta be in his 90s now, because he's been there since I was, uh, my first trip to Israel years and years ago. He uh, gives you rides for a few shekels, he'll ride. But I, I never ride the donkey, because if you watch people ride donkeys, it's, it's embarrassing. Uh, there's no way to be cool and ride a donkey at the same time. Uh, they just kind of, like you just clap, 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 It's just, and everybody laughs when their friends ride the donkeys. But, which is funny when you think about how Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Uh, that's a whole other thing. So in Matthew's account, um, you know, the mother of the cult 
you know, went with them. Uh, there's other accounts um, in the other gospels that give us more detail on this. Um, and, and by the way, on this Palm Sunday road, uh, I'm gonna probably spend uh, even more time in Mark and Luke about this particular story. I kind of like the high level view that Matthew gives us of this story. It's almost like he wants to give us a snapshot more than all the details, which is uh, interesting. Um, so, um, uh, th- that's the plan. Go, go and get a, a colt and bring it and Jesus was gonna um, uh, need them. I love that phrase, the Lord hath need of them. Does the Lord have need of anything? You, you know, you say no, but as it turns out, Jesus said the Lord has need of them. Uh, so th- does the Lord need you? Well, you know, we know he doesn't need us, but he actually needs us. Uh, I qualify as a donkey sometimes. If the Lord can need a donkey, he can need you as well. Um, And the Lord oftentimes, you know, the old saying, without him, we can't, but without us, he won't. The Lord wants to use you and uh, he has need of you. And if he can use a donkey, he can use you and me. Uh, I won't even use the other word for donkey for that. (laughs) Verse four, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek and sitting upon an ass. Uh, and a colt of the foal of an ass. Um, So right now we're setting the stage, Jesus, I should say, is uh, setting the stage for fulfilling Bible prophecy. Um, I love Bible prophecy, both that which is already fulfilled and that which is yet to be fulfilled. There's so much that hasn't really been fulfilled yet. Um, And we're gonna see those, some of those things we're watching fulfilled right in in front of our very eyes. Uh, what are some of the prophecies you, you and I are watching right now? Um, we're watching the prophecy, uh, m- many of the older people in this crowd, you, you've seen it from kind of beginning to end. When Israel became a nation again, May 14th, 1948, to the present day where Israel is one of the biggest powerhouses in the world, um, economically, militarily, um, you know, the regathering of the Jews uh, in the last 150 years has been a, a, a prophecy fulfilled right during our lifetime where God would scatter the Jews all over the world. That happened for 2,000 years. And then the regathering of the Jews, we've watched that. Um, I believe we're seeing the players, the pieces be put in place for the possible Gog-Magog war of Ezekiel 38 and 39. I mean, those, those players are in place ready to roll, that could happen. And there's, there's no, not a lot of political shuffling that has to happen for the prophecies of Ezekiel. Or like I mentioned in the prophecy update, Isaiah 17, the destruction of Damascus. That prophecy has yet to happen, but it sure could happen tonight. Um, Israel's constantly bombing Damascus right now. Um, and there's reasons that we could get off course, and I'm not gonna do that uh, tonight. But uh, you know, our old prophecy updates, we've been covering all these things. We're watching some prophecies happen Um, And some of them I'd say for sure. Other ones I'd say, we'll see. We'll see if that's the way it is. Um, I believe the, uh, like for example, the regathering of the Jews into Israel and Jerusalem and what we've watched in the last hundred years, that for for sure is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy right during our time. Now we have to be careful on some of the other ones like saying, well, for sure, the Gog-Magog war is gonna happen in our lifetime because of the players. Nah, that's where we have to kind of say, could it be? Is it possible? And it sure looks possible to me but um, I, I fear that some prophecy buffs get a little too excited and they've been saying stuff like that for the last you know, 50 years uh, only to be proven, well, that wasn't it. And they said, well, for sure, the Lord's coming back in 1982. Uh, and when they get dogmatic like that, it makes everybody just look stupid. Um, but don't diminish prophecy. I love the prophecy that's in the Bible that was fulfilled by Jesus's first coming. 
There's more than 300 prophecies in the Bible, the Old Testament, about the first coming of Jesus, all of which were perfectly fulfilled. One of them is right here. In fact, you'll notice in your margin, Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Um, and that, by the way, is where uh, Zechariah the prophet said this, you know, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Um, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king comes and he is just and having salvation, lowly riding upon an ass, upon the colt of a foal of an ass. So I love how Jesus is, is, is setting the stage here to perfectly fulfill um, Bible prophecy. Now, some of you might come from churches and groups or watching online and say, yeah, you guys are in private, what a waste of time. Would it have been a waste of time had the people known then when Jesus was gonna come down the road, Palm Sunday Road, would, would that have been good for the Jews to know, oh, this is, this is Jesus, the Messiah from the Old Testament? Would it have been no good for them? In fact, it would have been so good that Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, oh, Jerusalem, have you only known in this thy day? What? Well, see, if you read Daniel chapter nine, they could have carefully read it, done the math and realized the Messiah was coming on Palm Sunday Road, the very day he rode down on the colt of a donkey. Um, and so Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, and I think there's still people today that have that same passive sort of attitude. Oh, I'm just a pan dribber, just gonna pan out. Uh, and, and I think that's not responsible Bible reading, nor is it responsible Bible study. Um, I think we need to, to learn from scriptures. And, and Jesus's first coming was a great example of that. They didn't know, they missed it. The star, the babe born in Bethlehem, they missed it. It was all prophesied. Um, they missed it when Jesus rode in Jerusalem. They missed it because they didn't care about Bible prophecy. Um, in the same way, I think there's people that are gonna miss and it will take them as a thief in the night because they haven't looked at the signs of the times and the prophecies of the Bible. Um, and and that's, I think that people today are acting in much the same way as uh, they are, were acting in Jesus's time. Matthew 24, 44, Jesus, we're gonna be in this chapter in a couple weeks. Jesus said, therefore be ye also ready for in such an hour as you think not the son of man cometh. Um, and that's where we're talking uh, about the second coming. First uh, Thessalonians five, one through two, talking to the church says, but you of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you um, uh, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. So, you know, you don't wanna be on the rapture of the church and the tribulation period that's coming and the second coming of Christ. You don't wanna be a dupe and not really study the scriptures and not know the timing or the times and seasons. We don't know the day of the hour, nor will we, but we will know the times and the seasons, it says there. That's kind of important. So Jesus was about to fulfill Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, uh, right before them, but they're gonna miss it as far as that fulfillment of prophecy. Well, verse six goes on. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them and brought the ass and the colt and put on them their, uh, put on them their clothes and they set him thereon. Uh, so using their clothes, you know, that's sort of a saddle for Jesus. Um, verse eight, and very, a, a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when the city was come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? <laughs> and the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. 
Do you get a sense they don't know what they're talking about? There's a little bit of that. They're, 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 it's, it's kind of funny. What are the people saying and who's saying it? Well, they're, they're, don't get this confused. There are two groups here, two groups that are sort of in the multitudes that are talking to each other. You've got the multitude and you have the city that are dif- differentiated here. The multitudes came to the city, by the way, for a different reason. Why were the multitudes, anybody know? Why were the multitudes in the city at that moment? Anybody? Passover. Um, and it's interesting, if you read about Jerusalem in the first century during the time of Jesus, it's amazing how many people would show up. I mean, some people, um, even some scholars argue that there was like more than a million people that would come to Jerusalem for the Passover. So the multitudes were piling in this, the city, which was pretty small back in the first century. So there would have been people everywhere. And that's the multitudes that we're talking about when it says the multitude, verse 11 said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. But the city, um, that's a different group. They're the ones that said, like uh, it says in verse 10, uh, he came into Jerusalem and the city was moved saying, who is this? So the, um, the multitudes try to answer the city's question. Uh, who is this guy? You guys are yelling Hosanna. And they said, well, he is the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And we have to remember that's the wrong answer. Would you agree with that? Because remember when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And who do men say that I am? And remember a prophet was not one of those things. They tried, you're Jeremiah the prophet or you're that prophet that was supposed to come. And Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Jesus said, I am the Christ. You are the Christ, Christos, the Messiah, son of the living God. So the the crowd gets it wrong on this, this particular time. Um, Jesus is not just some prophet. Um, Jesus is God in the flesh. And so you say, okay, so why are they crying out Hosanna? Well, as it turns out, did you know during the um, Passover feast, did you know that they would on their way up to Jerusalem, they would uh, sing this Psalm uh, even before Jesus came, the year before at Passover, they were singing the same song as it turns out. Um, But it does seem that they're wondering, is this, is this the king of the Jews? Uh, and, the, and the reason why is because they're, they're using this thing that they would be crying out at Passover normally. They're actually crying it out in the context of Jesus riding the colt in. And they cry out Hosanna. What is this word Hosanna? It's an interesting word. The, um, you know, uh, the, the, the word comes from the Hebrew uh, yasha, and, which means to save or be saved. And then the word na which means uh, pray for or uh, please now, like, like pray for it to happen right now. Um, so when you say Yashana or Hosanna, that's where these, the, the word is derived from. So most of us just uh, say it means help us, save now is what they're looking for. Now, what are they asking for salvation for? Well, that depends on whether you're the city or the crowd or whatever, but most of them are looking for some political or even economic sort of answer, um, uh, or even militaristic rule over the Roman Empire. Um, but they're quoting from Psalm 118. Would you keep your finger here and turn over to Psalm 118 with me real quick? Because there in the Psalms, this is one of the Psalms that they would, um, that they would sing uh, on their way to, uh, or while they're at the Passover. It's a Messianic Psalm. That is, it's about the coming Messiah, um, which we know as Jesus. They didn't know that. But in, in Psalm 118, uh, verse 19, you should know, it'd be worth reading the whole chapter when you have time this week. But, um, but Psalm 118, verse 19 says, open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them and I will praise the Lord. 
this gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee for thou hast heard me and thou art become my salvation. The stone, verse 22, which the builders refused is become the head of the stone of the corner. This is the builders doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, that's the word. Yasha na, or Hosanna, save now. I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of God, uh, house of the Lord. Um, you see, this, this, this is where these people got that idea of singing Hosanna, save now, or, or shouting, crying out, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of They're drawing that from this messianic psalm. So the crowd is trying to discern, who is this? Uh, is he the Messiah? It's almost like they're all wondering, what, what are we celebrating? Why are we here? Um, and as it turns out, um, they're, they're actually, they don't even really know what they're asking for. Now, here's a question. Um, as you read Psalm 118.22, you, you and I realize, man, they're so close. They, they kind of get it, but they kind of don't. And when the multitude says, oh, he's just a prophet from Nazareth, you realize they really don't get it. Um, they get that Jesus is sort of the savior, but they don't realize the scope in which he's gonna save the whole world by dying on the cross. Um, so the people are saying Hosanna here um, in our text. But, but then there, there's a question that I tend to have. Um, if, why would Jesus go through all of this? If they're receiving him wrongly, <clears throat> why then accept the praise that he's getting and go through with it? Um, if they don't get it right, which we, we kind of know from the rest of the story, they, they really aren't getting what's happening. Um, it'd be shortly thereafter, the rest, all of the multitudes in the crowd in the city will be saying, crucify him, we will not have this man rule over us. So why would Jesus accept it and go through it? In fact, um, we're gonna see him talk about, you know, how even the stones will cry out. If, if these people are hushed on this one, even the stones will start crying out. In other words, the praise is worthy and it's due unto my name. But these people are getting it wrong. So is Jesus just playing a game with these people saying, you guys, are, it's nice, thanks for the praise, but you're all wrong and wacko. What's going on there? I believe Jesus is doing something that we need to recognize. And that is Jesus is giving Israel the chance to accept him as the king. And that needs to be part of the story. Jesus knows, and, and that's why, if you can picture in your mind's eye, was Jesus like, <laughs> oh, light bulb, you know, like the uh, going through, was he parading and like celebrating or was he more somber? We're gonna see that Jesus has more of a somber mode. He's riding in Jerusalem, everybody's freaking out, but he's not all excited about it. And it's because he weeps, he'll weep and say, don't you even know that this that day, what's happening here? And the answer is no, you don't. But um, no one could accuse Jesus of not revealing himself like the Old Testament said he would. He revealed himself as the Messiah. No one can, can say, you didn't do that. But Jesus writing in Jerusalem, he's saying, I am the Messiah. I am fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament, uh, even though you will uh, reject me and despise me. Knowing he'd be rejected, but he'd give them a chance. Um, and he'd use this to identify the heart of a nation that has rejected him. Um, so um, even in Zechariah, remember when the Jews will see Jesus as the lamb that was slain and ultimately, and they'll say, where did you get those wounds? And he'll say, I received these wounds in the house of my friends. This is what Jesus knows he's going to do. Um, 
Is it possible that, 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 that he never had come into Jerusalem um, by this route before? Have you ever thought about this? Um, uh, if you, if you um, see in the Gospel of John, he usually went in a different uh, gate and took a different route. Um, most scholars believe Jesus normally went into the sheep gate. Um, uh, sometimes uh, I've taken people to the Temple Mount and we actually go out through the sheep gate. Uh, and uh, it's a, it was a, a very low profile gate. It's like nobody would go through the sheep gate. Uh, you'd go, if you're large and in charge, you'd go through like the east gate or the southern steps up to the gates and stuff, the hold the gates or whatever. You'd go into other places to be more seen. But most of the time, Jesus seemed to go in an unobtrusive sort of manner. Um, the sheep gate was the gate where the animals would be brought in to be sacrificed on the altar in Jerusalem. But here in this story, he rides in as king and those who are uh, recognizing him as king. Uh, but this is their op opportunity to reject him or accept him. And, and ultimately they choose to reject. That's so sad to me. Um, by the way, uh, I'm gonna give you a, a flash, a uh, quick thing for you Bible students. If you wanna look up something a little... Um, how many times did Jesus come in at this particular, uh, we, we think of the triumphal entry, which I'm not sure that's a great way to call it. In fact, we call a bunch of things I'm not sure we should call them because of tradition, triumphal entry. Um, uh, uh, Palm Sunday, was Palm Sunday for sure on a Sunday? No, probably not. Nor was Good Friday on a Friday. Uh, uh, be careful with tradition and things that people tell you from papal edicts and things like that. But so I, I have a hard time calling it the triumphal entry because Jesus is weeping. Uh, triumphal entry seems like he'd be going, <laughs> you know, hello everybody, I'm triumphing, but, uh, but he's weeping. Um, and then not only that, it's probably not Palm Sunday. It could have been Palm Thursday or whatever. Who knows what day, but we don't know for sure. Um, but there is, if you do a bit of a construct um, of, of what, what Jesus did, there's kind of a composite picture if you use Matthew, Mark, Luke. Um, as sort of this riding into Jerusalem. But there's something that I, I think is kind of interesting about this. The first time Jesus came in to Jerusalem was on a Saturday, um, and it was probably the Sabbath day, um, where there were no money changers um, on that day, probably. And he looked around and left. That's all we get. It's Mark 11, 11. You can jot that down in your notes. Jesus entered in Jerusalem, looked into the temple. When he had looked around uh, on all things, then the evening came and he went to Bethany with the twelve. And I believe if you would, this is just me giving you some quick stuff. He entered the first day out of three uh, as a priest, looking around uh, and seeing the temple. Um, the second day he entered Jerusalem was on a Sunday, the first day of the week. The money changers were there because that's their Monday and he cleansed the temple. Um, and we're gonna see that uh, coming up here in a bit in our text. On this day, he would enter as king where he'd, he'd take control and wipe out the money changers. The third day he would enter Jerusalem would be on a Monday, the second day of the week. And all that time, um, it seems that he wept over Jerusalem and then entered the temple and taught and healed people. That's Luke 19, verses 41 through 48. You can read that. And as that, he's entering as a prophet who's teaching and healing. So the, as we compare these three records in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it becomes really apparent to me, at least, that um, the, these three records of Jesus entering Jerusalem into three different days, um, it seems like the, the, the Lord did this on three consecutive days in three consecutive roles as priest, as king, as prophet. And then each day he would retire back to Bethany where Mary and Martha lived. The reason that's important, do you guys remember, um, who can be prophet, priest, and king? 
Only Jesus can do those three things. Uh, that's something you get away from the Old Testament and you can't miss it if you've read through the Old Testament. Um, any king that tried to act as a prophet or a priest was not a good thing. Jesus does all of those three things. But um, some people see kind of that interesting pattern uh, back to Matthew uh, tw uh, 21 where Jesus is entering in as prophet, priest, and king. I like that. Well, let's keep going. Cleansing of the temple um, happens now. Um, and again, don't be frustrated if you like, we just kind of blew through the Palm Sunday or whatever Sunday it was or whatever road it was, day. Um, we're gonna cover that in greater detail as we keep going. Uh, but now, verse 12, as, as Jesus, Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold uh, and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Wow, that's uh, like almost like a parenthetical statement at the end, oh, he healed everybody too. Uh, which is amazing, uh, which gives him the authority. Like, what are these religious guys gonna do? He's healing a bunch of people that have been hunting, uh, sick and hurting for years, and now what are they gonna say? And nobody has anything to say. This is sort of the Reader's Digest version of the cleansing of the temple. We have greater detail, like he made a whip of small cords and stuff like that in, in John's gospel uh, and what have you. But the temple was a place where God was supposed to be dwelling. They made it a money pit where we were ripping off people, um, not praying, but praying, that is P-R-E-Y-I-N-G. They were praying upon the people and charging them money. Um, you know, some poor little guy from Bethlehem would have walked, you know, his, his uh, day's journey um, and with his little lamb and he'd walk up to make a sacrifice and then the, the priest would go, oh, sorry, your lamb has all kinds of blemishes, but we have a better model here and we'll sell it to you for $10,000. Uh, and it was kind of the way they were ripping off the people. Um, and uh, these high exchange rates, they, they, they were the ch money changers were ripping off people that were coming to wor worship God, um, which is really a bummer because I, I feel like in some ways, you know, um, churches and what have you, whether you're from any denomination or Catholicism, Protestantism, whatever you are, there's a lot of ripoff artists out there and you do have to be careful. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting when people are always asking for money. Uh, I think that's an important uh, thing to watch out for. Uh, when people are constantly asking for money. Um, churches should be better than that. They should, now taking in money is something that, that through the tithe and the offering, something that church does. That's how you pay bills. That's how you help the community. And that's how the church is, um, makes a difference in some ways. But when it becomes about the money and when people are asking about it, I, I almost look at that as like the changers of money that are sitting. Um, you know, the Catholic priest saw the money taken in from the days of indulgences back in those days. And the priest, you know, there uh, said, no longer can we say silver and gold have we none. But then one of the onlookers said, neither can you say in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Um, which is really true. I think the more money grabbing churches have become, the more powerless and weak they've become. Um, so Jesus says something here that's kind of important. Um, this is called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And um, that's one of the things I so appreciate in our church is the, the prayer warriors. Uh, I feel like we need more of those, people that are just given to prayer. Um, prayer is powerful. And um, uh, I remember um, uh, the story of something where Spurgeon was uh, you know, showing some people around his you know, famous Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. 
kind of, the, he was called the Prince of Preachers back in the 1800s, but, um, but they, were, they were asking about, you know, where did you get the power to preach such a powerful gospel? And he said, I'll show you. And he started winding down through the tabernacle, down into the, near the boiler room into the basement. And he opened a door and showed those people he was giving the tour to. There was a group of men and women that were on their knees praying uh, before the Lord for, for that Sunday service. Um, and he said, this is where the power is. I think that's great. We need people who are prayer warriors and take prayer seriously. Uh, we, you know, we, we're told what the church to do, teach the Bible, fellowship with one another, break bread of communion, but it's also to be a house of prayer. And that's something we need to focus on. Um, notice verse 14, it says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Um, which is interesting because those people were considered uh, defiled. If you were blind or lame, uh, you really weren't allowed into the temple. And it seems somehow Jesus lets them in or, and nobody's gonna cross him on that. That's kind of an important thing, but he would heal them. So if you were one of the religious leaders saying, hey, you can have blind and lame people in here and Jesus, okay, I'll fix that. He'd be healed, be healed, be healed, be healed. And they all got up and walked out. Oh, okay, well, how, how are you gonna convict him of that if he's healing everybody? I love that. Well, verse 16, and... Um, uh, uh, pardon me, back up, verse 15. It says, and when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, that the, uh, the children crying in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, uh, they were sore displeased. Um, interesting, it's the children doing it that these guys really get upset about. Don't you know these children are saying, Hosanna, save now? Don't, they, don't you know what they're saying? And then Jesus, uh, I love this, verse 16, and, and, and they said unto him, hearest thou what these say? And Jesus said, yea, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings that was perfected praise? Don't mess with Jesus when it comes to being smart or witty or any of that stuff. These guys, what do these kids say? And you know, uh, and I like their question, you know, hearest thou what these say? And Jesus, have you ever read the Bible? Um, good question to ask. And this is gonna get even more heated as we go. Um, but he goes on in verse 17, um, and he left them um, and, and went out of the city into Beth, Bethany and he lodged there. And that was his practice. Hit in Jerusalem, minister for a day, come back to Bethany. Verse 18, now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon, but leaves only, and said unto it, let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how soon the fig tree withered away. Um, isn't it funny how they're, they're all excited about the trick? wow, he made the fig tree wither, but they, they, they probably could care less about well, what does that mean? You know, um, and Jesus was trying to sort of have something that was a little deeper in meaning. But um, the, the cursing of the fig tree is, um, is, you know, it's interesting that Jesus got hungry just like us. Um, and he, uh, you know, uh, uh, probably not hangry like us. Some of us get hangry. Have you ever gotten hangry before? when you're hungry, but you think that's what Jesus, Jesus walks, I'm hungry, oh, that fig tree, cursed be the fig tree. It's like, no, I don't think it was hangry, he was just hungry. But more than just making a tree die, uh, and I know in Portlandia, some of you are like, oh, but the poor tree is dead, you know, it's like, yeah, uh, it's just a tree, sorry. Um, but Jesus, uh, Jesus was talking about a fruitless tree. 
Um, now, one of the things we're gonna talk about in Matthew 24 is what is the fig tree a picture of? Uh, and we're, and that's, that's something that um, we, we need to do uh, some heavy duty work on and we'll cover that. But for this moment, keep this tree in mind, fig tree, that's a fruitless fig tree. Um, the point is that it looks like a normal tree with leaves and everything, but it doesn't have any fruit. And one of the things you and I have to be aware of is um, we don't wanna be the fruitless tree. Uh, Jesus talked about, you'll know them by their fruits. And how is the fruit in your life? That's something you and I should be asking ourselves. Do you have good fruit, bad fruit, no fruit? Um, you know, one of the things we're supposed to do is be fruitful. Uh, and one of our fruitful things we're supposed to do is bring pleasure to the Lord. Revelation 4.11, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things for thy pleasure and they are and were created. So this fig tree did not bring pleasure to Jesus who's God, so it withers away. One of the things you and I should always be concerned about is are we bringing pleasure? Are we fruitful specifically to the Lord? Are we fruitful to the Lord? Um, uh, you know, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 talks about the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace. Like, are you seeing, you know, long suffering and gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Um, those are the fruits of the spirit. Um, another thing we notice here in verse 19, it's, it's, it's the lone fig tree. It's by the wayside, as, as the ESV puts it, I think. But when it says here in verse 19, when he saw a fig tree in the way, the idea is uh, the, uh, the, the Greek word is actually by, more by the wayside, um, which meant it, was, meant it was kind of alone. Um, and fig trees do better when they're in groups or orchards, but not al alone. The cross-pollinization, we're supposed to be in groups as Christians. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of analogies in this fig tree that we can see. Um, but uh, that's one of the things I think being a part of a church and being with other Christians is we, there's a sort of a cross-pollinization to fruitfulness. Um, I'm reminded of Hebrews 10, uh, verse 24 through 25. Let us consider one another to provoke to love and good works. You and I are supposed to provoke each other, to love each other and provoke us to good works. That's fruit. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Um, the lone wolf Christian that's out there just doing his own thing, thinking he's worshiping God in the woods or whatever, um, that's not what the Bible talks about the church and that's not fruitfulness. Fruitfulness comes from being gathered. Uh, it's a practical, practical lesson, a spiritual lesson. Um, and um, we might say the Jews were in that category of fruitlessness. If, if Israel's the fig tree, which we'll talk about that in Matthew 24, um, they were a fruitless sort of generation. Uh, by the AD 70, the temple would be destroyed, the Jews would be scattered. So there you have it, kind of a heavy thing. Well, the disciples weren't marveling at the practical lesson. They were marveling that the fig tree withered away. And so Jesus meets them where they're at, verse 21. And Jesus answered and said unto them, verily I say unto you, if you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this which is done, the withering you know, to the fig tree, but also if you shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and, and, if, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all, all things whatsoever you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. Jesus is trying to say the withering of the tree is nothing. If you really wanna see something, try moving a mountain and then have it thrown into the sea and all things are really possible through uh, the power of prayer. People of faith is, can do greater things than seeing the, the fig tree. And we could talk about, um, you know, uh, asking amiss. There's things that make your prayers and your desires fail to fly. We've done whole sermons on that. But if you're 
submitted to the Lord and doing the will of God, and you're in faith, uh, you know, seeing the Lord's hand move, you're gonna see great things. If you're doing it for the wrong motives and for evil intent, you may not see great things. Um, but the idea is, you know, faith without seeing. Have faith that your prayer will land in his capable hands. That's kind of what Jesus is teaching the disciples. Well, the next day, the priests, the priests here try to match Jesus uh, with wits and with intellect. Uh, this ought to be funny. Check it out, verse 23. It says, um, and when he was coming to the temple, the chief priests and the elders and the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you will tell me, I will in likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. <laughs> um, and the baptism of John, whence was it from heaven or of men? <laughs> and they reasoned within themselves saying, if we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, why did ye not then believe him? But if we shall say of men, we fear the people for all hold John as a prophet. Um, they were trying to trap Jesus, but Jesus trapped um, them. But it's not just that he trapped them. It's really what he was saying here that's so uh, kind of key and important. Um, one of the things he's doing by trapping them is he's actually in some ways revealing by what authority he's doing the things he's doing without saying it. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of uh, mark these things. By what authority does Jesus do it all? Well, the very first thing that we see here uh, in this particular dissertation was the Father's authority. Um, and we're, we're kind of seeing that. Jesus answers the question. John the Baptist was of God. Um, uh, and, and remember, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. So the validity of John the Baptist plays into the validity of Jesus. Um, and it was the authority of the Father that said, this is my beloved son. God boomed down from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. So um, Jesus is indirectly touching on the authority by which he does these things by mentioning John the Baptist. And these guys couldn't answer because the crowd knew John the Baptist was of the Lord. And for them to reject that, the crowd would go crazy. Jesus knew all that. So verse 27, they answered Jesus and said, we cannot tell. And he said to them, neither tell I by what, things, by what authority I do these things. Now, now he's gonna go into sort of the next uh, sort of uh, thing here in verse 28. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, but he went not. Whether of them or which of the two did the will of his father? And they answered him and said, the first. And Jesus said to them, verily I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. <laughs> For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, but the publicans and the harlots believed him. And you, when you had seen it, repented not afterward that you might believe in him. Jesus is calling them out. John the Baptist was of God, um, you know, but you guys really rejected God, uh, John the Baptist, you know, and he makes that clear. Um, so in the parable, the son that wouldn't go, that's the publicans and, uh, um, and sinners who eventually did come. Uh, they later repented and accepted Jesus. 
Um, but the son that said he would go but didn't were the religious leaders and they have no relationship with Christ. And so they're, they're in a sense, we saw the first thing, they, they rejected the father's authority in the first part of their dissertation here. But the second thing we see is they're rejecting the son uh, and his authority here in verses, um, uh, in these verses that we just read. In fact, let's read on because we'll see how they rejected the son even more. Verse 33, here another parable, there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to the husbandman or the farmer and went into a far country. And when the time of the uh, fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandman that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent out other servants more than the first and they did unto them likewise. But the last of all, he sent <clears throat> unto them his son saying, they will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and let us seize on the, his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out into the, of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord therefore the vineyard cometh, what will he do to those husbandmen? <laughs> Verse 41, they say unto him, he will um, miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard to other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their season. Jesus just told a story that nails all these religious leaders. They, you know, who are the first guys that they beat up and stoned? The prophets that were sent before in the Old Testament to speak the Lord's truth. But eventually God the Father sends his only begotten son, Jesus, and these guys are going to beat him and destroy him and kill him. Jesus is again foreshadowing his death, but he's calling out the very guys that are gonna do it right here. This is Jesus knowing where he was going, what was happening, and he's really calling them out. This is, this is where the, the people are saying, by what authority do you do this? And he said, I'm not gonna answer your question, but he tells these stories and he says, you've rejected the authority that I have, the father's authority and the son's authority. And that's why he tells this story there in verses 33 uh, through 41. And then Jesus gets into um, something that's interesting. Do you remember uh, when we were back in Psalm 118 there in the earlier part of this chapter? Part of that was the stone that the builders rejected. That's what the people were saying from Hosanna, save now. Remember that was all Psalm 118? But then Jesus sums up the chapter right here um, with the idea of the stone, verse 42. Jesus said unto them, did you never read in the scriptures um, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. One of the things we prayed after worship tonight is that how thankful we are for the stone which we can put our feet on, the solid rock of Jesus Christ. But one of the things you have to know about the stone, and we've done whole studies on this, that he's either the stone that you are broken before him or you'll be the he'll be the stone that will, you'll be crushed by him. Um, the, the disciples and the harlots and the uh, publicans and sinners, they would all come and repent before the stone, Jesus. And because of that, they would see good fruit, just like this chapter is talking about. But the religious leaders would reject the cornerstone. Just like the Messianic Psalm of Psalm 118 that the people were crying out on his donkey ride down the Palm Sunday road. Jesus is connecting all the dots. Do you guys see that? 
by bringing up the cornerstone that's rejected, he's connecting the dots of what everybody's saying, what the religious leaders are doing and saying, and he's, he's calling them out in a way that cannot be denied. These guys are guilty as charged on every level. And Jesus really calls them out to where they really have no response. Well, you can imagine, verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. <laughs> Duh. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. Sad, sad ending of this chapter. Here's Jesus explaining, you guys, are re you're rejecting the cornerstone. You've rejected the son and the will of the father and, and uh, your fruitless generation. Um, but the people that are gonna be saved, it's a whole nother group. And Jesus is sort of foreshadowed when he talks about the kingdom being given, taken from you, the Jews, but given uh, to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. That's the church age that we are in now where the Jews are on hold. Um, the, we're in the time of the church age and that's what Jesus was foretelling there. We'll get into that as we go further through the study of Matthew. So there it is, chapter 21 and Wow, chapter and a half, new world record for the gospel of Matthew. <laughs> well, Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray that you'd help us to absorb these truths and apply them practically. Um, Lord, there's so much we can take home just on what to do and what not to do. So would your spirit remind us of these truths and sink them into our hearts and our minds, um, Lord. And, and I pray your blessing on these people who've taken time to study your word and bring forth good fruit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.